Hello and welcome to The Stakes, the sort of political podcast from MTV News that has now officially survived the summer heat. We made it, y'all. It's September, and it's a beautifully balmy fall day. <laughs> I can't even read that. LOL, JK, it's 110 degrees here in our Los Angeles studio, and about the same in New York with the added ambiance of wet garbage smell. At any rate, I'm Holly Anderson, MTV's Director of Politics and News. Coming up on the show today, we've got a poem about the contradictory nature of faith and its ability to breed both hate and compassion. We'll hear Jamil Smith speaking with Alicia Garza, the co-creator of Black Lives Matter, about a new project to put the voices of women of color on the agenda this election year. Plus, Mukta Mohan talks to a terror expert on the false security alarms at New York and Los Angeles airports during the last few weeks that had passengers and, it seems, their respective security teams in a panic. But first... Our senior political correspondent, Anna Marie Cox, spoke with Ron Honberg, senior policy advisor at the National Alliance on Mental Illness, about Hillary Clinton's new platform dedicated to mental health reform. I'm calling you mainly to discuss Hillary Clinton's mental health initiative that she rolled out this week, which mm-hmm. unfortunately was kind of lost in a flurry of um, dick pics, basically. Um <laughs> And I, I, so obviously you've taken a look at it. Um, what do you see as significant about it? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty comprehensive. You know, the, the reality is, is that mental health, mental illness, when you look at the numbers of people who are affected, over 40 million adults alone, and the economic costs of untreated mental illness in this country both in terms of disability, lost productivity, but also things that happen to people when they don't get treatment, whether it's, um, you know, homelessness or uh, suicides or, you know, incarceration. Um, One could make the case that it is one of the top public health crises uh, facing Americans today, yet, you know, rarely, if ever, does mental health elevate to the level of um, of focus in a presidential campaign that, you know, or in a political campaign that we think it should. So she has this comprehensive plan that she's put out. And what's unusual about it, it sounds like, is that it is an actual comprehensive plan. It's not simply like an addendum to a a larger health policy. Is that right? That's correct. For the first time uh, really ever, we're talking about early diagnosis and intervention in treating mental health conditions. I know that's probably sounds very surprising, given that we've been talk we talk about early intervention for any all other health conditions. But the reality is, is that mental health treatment in this country is oftentimes not been available to people until emergencies occur, uh, and then only for as long as necessary to deal with the emergency. We know that the signs and, and the symptoms of mental health conditions oftentimes emerge um, in childhood or, or adolescence or young adulthood. Um, And we also know that years oftentimes pass between the times that symptoms first emerge and the time that, you know, someone is diagnosed and treated. So, you know, putting one of the really important themes in in the Clinton mental health agenda is um, is uh, early intervention. And, you know, she taught they talk about um, educating pediatricians because, you know, when a family has a young person who appears to be struggling, They typically don't go to a psychiatrist. They go to their pediatrician. Maybe they go to the teachers at the school, the guidance counselor, or 
maybe they go to their local religious institution. And, and um, so it's really important that we educate, um, you know, those folks uh, to know what the signs and symptoms are and what to do to help young people who may be manifesting um, uh, mental health problems. And, and so there's a lot of emphasis in this agenda on that, as well as on um, expanding some of the promising approaches that have emerged to treating early psychosis. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, first episode psychosis programs, which is, you know, we've had for the last five or 10 years, some real progress in that area. I think that's something that people don't realize and that it, one reason maybe this is coming, you know, she, things have sort of created an, an environment where, where, you know, Hillary Clinton had an opportunity to do this and people recognize it as being needed is that we've for a long time talked about mental illness as sort of a side issue of a lot of other things, right? Like it's a side issue of gun control. It's a side issue of police violence for that matter. You know, um, Mm -hmm. it's a side issue of education. And here we're actually seeing it laid out as like, no, this is the, this is a central issue that affects you know, over 40 million Americans, and we're going to treat it not as an offshoot of anything. Well, and it also affects recovery from other types of, from physical illnesses as well. Mm-hmm. So we know, we know that, um, you know, if someone is, is uh, being treated for, uh, you know, another health condition, another chronic health condition, the state of their mental health is, um, you know, has a big impact on, on how well they do. And, um, uh, we also know that when people uh, experience, um, you know, physical illness, uh, it also um, can can cause mental health problems, mm-hmm. depression, um, anxiety. Understandably so. And and so I've never we've ne- I've never quite understood why we have carved mental health out as somehow different. Um, I mean, the brain is part of the body, right? Right. How do you think pe- most people are going to see, should she be elected and, and, and let's say parts of this plan are rolled out? Like, how do you see this sort of having an impact on people's daily lives? It seems to me that one way they might see it is in um, police training to deal with the mentally ill or mental health crises. Um, and like you said, maybe training in schools. Can you think of any others? Oh, sure. Um, so part of it is a resource issue. You know, the, the fact is, is that fewer than 50 percent of people with mental health conditions have access to even minimally adequate treatment. Frankly, part of it is in research. We still have a ways to go to really understand what these conditions are, for example, to understand the sort of complex interaction between environment and biology, what causes these illnesses, how they can be most effectively treated. And, and, and part of it is also, though, I mean, hopefully we'll move beyond an over-reliance on medication Mm -hmm. because medication may be part of the treatment, but it's, it's only a small part of it. And I have to say, and it's an important part of it, but a small part of it that people, um, you know, one of the real keys is to retain hope. I mean, let's say you're a 21 year old person and you're faced with this reality that you've been diagnosed with a mental illness. Um, Believe me, this happens all the time. The messages that are conveyed to people is your life as you hoped it would be is over. Forget about, you know, a professional career. Forget about getting married. Forget about um, uh, living independently. Uh, You'll do well if you can live outside a 
a hospital. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the kind of messages we've conveyed to people. And that's not true. The Clinton plan talks about research, but in a very comprehensive way. It doesn't only talk about, well, we need to do more brain research. It also talks about we need to do research on what are keys to recovery for a young person, on you know, where we need to be best putting our resources, on what works, on, um, on the role that peers can play in, in helping other young people recover, um, you know, on what we can do to help people stay in college. Mm-hmm. And if you tell a young person, well, your life, as you hoped it would be, is over, what incentive do they have to participate in treatment? I actually was surprised by two things um, in, in her initiative. One is actually the very first thing that is talked about in the paper on the website is suicide, which I'm not sure Americans realize is the epidemic that it appears to be. Yeah, well, we the the rates of suicide in this country are enormous. Um, uh, You know, uh, just for example, 22 veterans a day take their own lives. the statistics on, on suicides are mind-boggling. It's the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. Each year, almost 43,000 Americans die by suicide. That's 117 people per day. And for every suicide, 25 are attempted. The brief amount of, of attention that Trump pays to mental illness, I would say, it is related to the Second Amendment and the, and the right of people with mental illness to partake in the in the right to bear arms um one thing that i often think of though when he speaks is he 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 portrays this image of america as like a violence ridden you know crime you know is everywhere and people don't realize that there is a lot of violence in america but it's what we're doing to ourselves that the rates of suicide are much higher than the rates of homicide like people people kill each kill themselves more than they kill each other much, much higher. And certainly the rates of gun related suicides are much more are much higher than gun related um, homicides, particularly connected to mental illness, you know, because I think it's important for us to talk a little bit about the violence issue, because mm-hmm. that seems to be have been driving the debate the last couple of years about mental illness. Um, so the studies that have been done suggest that mental illness in and of itself is not a predictor for greater violence. Mental illness coupled with uh, certain risk factors that when coupled with mental illness may somewhat increase the risk of violence. So um, those risk, those other risk factors would be being young, being male, um, and, and particularly use of illegal drugs or alcohol. So if you couple that with, with maybe a psychosis, um, then perhaps there is an increased risk of violence not a huge increase in risk, but an increased risk. But most of the gun violence that occurs in this country has no connection whatsoever to mental illness. Only about 4% of the gun violence has a connection to mental illness. Yet, when you look at suicides, um, use of guns, as I recall, is not necessarily the biggest way. But what we do know is that when people try to take their lives using guns, at least 50% 50% of the cases, they're successful. And when they're not successful, they, you know, there's, there's profound disability that, that, that results. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we should drop in the lifeline number. Yes, I have that in front of me. It's, um, it's 1-800-273-8255. That's the uh, National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It's a wonderful hotline. Um, 
available to people on a 24-7 basis. And also, I I will point out, Crisis Helpline is on Twitter and so is Lifeline, and they will respond to Mm -hmm. you. Like, if you tweet at them, you know, they'll they'll get back to you. The last thing I want to ask you um, is, we speak about the stigma of mental health. Does it bother you when people call Donald Trump a, you know, pathological or a psychopath or a narcissist? Those are technical terms, right? Yeah, well, first of all, it's not, nothing against reporters. I love reporters, but reporters shouldn't be, or lay people should not be diagnosing. Um, our candidates. Um, and, and yes, I think that when we loosely throw around terms like crazy or schizo or, or, you know, in, insane or, you know, lunatic or whatever, we really set back the cause of recovery. We really impede further barriers to people coming forward and, and seeking help uh, when they need it and being willing to talk about their need for help without fear of negative reprisals. It reinforces um, the perception that, um, you know, admitting that you have mental health problems is going to lead to being ostracized. It does bother, it bothers us tremendously. Uh, I'm not gonna give my own opinion, but, but, you know, we can dislike a candidate and we can even be appalled by statements that a candidate makes without necessarily attributing it to some sort of mental disorder. That was senior political correspondent Anna Marie Cox speaking to Ron Honberg, senior policy advisor at the National Alliance on Mental Illness. You can visit their website, www.nami.org, for more information about them and to read their guide to college and mental health, just in time for the new school year. This election year, just saying the words Black Lives Matter, or theatrically refusing to, if that's your hill to die on, has become almost a shorthand for your political allegiance. But the Black Lives Matter movement is, as you know, so much more than a slogan. Alicia Garza is one of the movement's co-founders, as well as director of special projects at the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Our senior national correspondent, Jamil Smith, spoke with her about a new initiative she's part of called We Won't Wait 2016, which specifically advocates for an economic agenda that advances the interests of women of color, immigrants, and low-income women. Alicia, what is the We Won't Wait 2016 initiative and who's taking part? Yes, so We Won't Wait is a nonpartisan um, convening of nine national groups that represents millions of members and we together are working to amplify the power of women of color of low-income women of immigrant women in 2016 so that we can push a new agenda for a new economy and a new democracy what we know about um, this moment is that there's a lot at stake and we want to make sure that the constituencies that have so much at stake are placed at the center of the conversation. So many times when we talk about big issues that are impacting us nationally, we put them in little boxes. There's women's issues, there's immigrant issues, there's worker issues, when the reality is we are many things at once. And so we need an agenda that actually reflects the way that we live our lives. Um, We're not just the women's vote or the Latino vote or the black vote. 
Um, we are all of those things, and we deserve an agenda that not only incorporates our experiences, but that really pushes the edge of what's possible so that we can change this country once and for all. I'm going to ask a little bit of a broader question. Do you feel like politicians understand intersectionality? Because I feel like that plays directly into what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that the way that our democracy is set up right now, um, that there's a lot of narrowing and siloing. And in some ways, I think sometimes people think that's more efficient. But so many people get left behind when we do that. And we aim to change the way that politics happens in this country. Uh, we can use intersectionality if we want to, or we could just say whole person politics. That, you know, the reality is, right, that we are not just single components of our lives. We are all of those things all of the time. And again, we deserve an agenda that reflects that and that pushes the best of what is possible. Now, Alicia, no one in America votes so often or in greater numbers than black women. You say 74 percent of those eligible did so in the last election. But politicians, you would think they'd be listening to black women, but arguably, you know, they're not. Why aren't they in your view? I think in my view, because we end up being seen as votes instead of people. And that's something that needs to be transformed about our democracy. The way that money factors into politics, um, you know, and the way that we, we end up being seen as votes and not people has real tangible impacts on our lives. You're right that black women vote consistently. We vote progressively. And yet there's very little on the table that specifically impacts black women um, in positive ways. And so, you know, our goal here is to transform the way that democracy works. Our goal here is to transform the way our economy works and to make sure that the policies that we're moving at a national level um, really take into account um, the people who are holding up this economy and holding together the broken tatters of our democracy. For example, uh, when we talk about women's issues, um, what we're mm-hmm. actually saying is white women. And so mm. when we talk about closing the wage gap, for example, we say that women make 77 cents to every dollar that a man makes. But the reality is that white women make 77 cents to every dollar that a white man makes. But for black women, it's 60 cents to every dollar that a white man makes and to the 77 cents that white women make. And for Latinas, it's something like 54 cents. Right. Uh, so what, what happens when we're not specific about policies that can really impact the quality of our life? Um, and what happens when we're not uh, taking into account that white women are not the control, right, um, for how we need to change our democracy, that there are actually women who are being left behind, even as we're trying to solve a pretty important problem. Um, So that notion of whole person politics really helps to take that into account and says, let's develop policy that really looks at the people who are holding together the tatters of our broken democracy and our broken economy. And let's make sure that we change their quality of life so that everybody benefits. We don't want to do trickle down politics anymore. We believe that bubble up politics um, is really the, the new frontier. So do you have any specific policy recommendations that you're pushing? Uh, certainly specifically that say you'd want Hillary Clinton to implement or say, you know, state or local candidate to start pushing. 
Well, to be clear, since we're a nonpartisan um, effort, uh, what we would want to see uh, is progress in several different areas. Uh, we are looking at issues of making sure that there's one fair wage that uh, workers aren't making differing levels of money and they're doing the same work. We also want to see rights, respect, and dignity for domestic workers, the people who care for the folks that we care for the most. We also, of course, want to see uh, legislation around paid sick days and paid family leave. Now, I want to go back to the domestic workers part of it, because, of course, you're the special projects director for the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Can you speak specifically to how young people should be focused on what domestic workers are going through and how they can help? What we know is that domestic work is rooted in the legacy of slavery. And, you know, for decades and generations, uh, the only work that black women could, uh, could get into was work in somebody else's home, taking care of someone else's child, cleaning somebody else's house, taking care of somebody else's elderly loved one or a loved one who had chronic disabilities or chronic illnesses. Um, and what we see is that even though legally slavery has been outlawed, that many of the conditions that existed for enslaved women um, continue to exist today. Uh, for us, domestic workers have uh, really taken a, a core place in our society. Domestic workers care for the people we care for the most, and domestic workers make all other work possible. And what we have, though, is a dynamic where domestic workers are locked out of most labor protections, uh, and domestic work, in some cases, isn't even seen as work. They're just seen as part of the family. And that's a problem. Every eight seconds, somebody turns 65, which means that they need extra support to continue to remain independent or to take care of things that may be going on with their bodies. Right. More and more Americans, right, are what we call the sandwich generation. So they are caring for children, and they're also caring for their parents um, who are getting older. And we have a, we're on the brink of a care crisis, right, where we have more and more people needing care, not enough people who are being trained to provide that care, and then the people who do provide that care are not being able to care for their own families because their wages are so low or in some cases being stolen. Uh, and they are also being exploited because the population of care workers who are immigrants, right, um, is, mm -hmm. is expanding rapidly. So, Alicia, I want to ask you, of course, about one of your other roles in the public sphere, which is as a co-founder of Black Lives Matter. And I want to ask you a little bit about the broader conversation that black liberation activism has introduced into presidential politics. Are you satisfied with the level of attention that these issues have gotten? I feel like it's certainly in my lifetime, I've never seen a presidential election that has paid this much attention to issues revolving around black life concerning criminal justice reform, whatnot. But at the same time, I'm not sure that we should be satisfied with that. Yeah. Well, I would agree with you. I, I, I think that there is um, a powerful movement that has reemerged in this country and around the world, quite frankly, that is really, really trying to once and for all eliminate and eradicate anti-black racism and state-sanctioned violence from our lives. 
Um, and as it relates to the presidential elections and, and local and state elections as well, uh, to be very clear, this is one of the first times that we've really started to see these issues front and center. Uh, what we're not satisfied with, however, is how those issues are being addressed. Uh, as you know, uh, the Movement for Black Lives policy table just released our vision for Black Lives, uh, which lays out very clearly uh, several different ways that we can move right now to improve not just the quality of life for black people, but improve the quality of life for everyone. Uh, one of the major gaps, though, that I, I think we continue to see is a lack of commitment to whole person politics, as I was sharing earlier. Right. Uh, one great example of that is, you know, we're not actually talking about police brutality uh, in the presidential election. Somehow that has been transformed into talking about gun control. And those are actually really different things. <laughs> um, we do need to talk about accountability for people who are supposed to uphold the law and instead act outside of it. Uh, we also need to talk about uh, how violence is normalized in our society. And we need to talk about the ways in which we have sanctioned some types of violence and criminalized and penalized other kinds of violence. Uh, that creates a very untenable situation. And if politicians and legislators are not ready or willing to really take on and tackle this question of whole person politics, then we're going to get half person results. And I think that this movement has been incredibly successful in impacting the conversation, but we still have a long way to go. I have to ask you about you, your position specifically with regards to the presidential election. And I understand that you're part of a nonpartisan movement now, but I, you know, you've been critical of Hillary Clinton with regards to her positions on issues that affect black communities, as well as her treatment of Black Lives Matter activists. It, with her in the election and with Donald Trump, a candidate who has literally encouraged violence, the violence that you say is poisoning our political system. How do you, your, you know, yourself decide who to vote for? What what how to use the very vote that you're trying to get others to employ? Mm. That's a great question. And, you know, speaking for myself, not on behalf of the network, not on behalf of the movement, um, speaking for myself, the way that I tend to see elections um, goes beyond individuals and really is about terrain. So ultimately, we need to build a movement that can transform the way that our economy works, the way that our democracy works, and that can improve the quality of life for everybody. And that's not going to be accomplished by one person. Um, and it's certainly not only going to be accomplished in the halls of Congress or in the White House. Right. Uh, so for me, um, I think that there's room to be very critical of both candidates, quite frankly, um, and to be very clear about what kind of terrain we need to have in order to be able to fight and win the things that we need. Um, and so I will be participating in the upcoming election. I will be making sure, right, that we uh, do not kind of transition uh, rapidly uh, into a, you know, fascist country. Um, mm -hmm. That would make our work as a movement incredibly difficult. Um, and, you know, that's the thing that I'm focused on. But to be really honest with you, I think there is a dynamic in this election where it's not just a question of 
the lesser of two evils. Um, it is a question of how do we transform democracy so that there are more options. Who would I vote for? I vote for the movement. Uh, and when I have to go to the voting booth, um, I vote for the people who, um, I vote for the terrain that I prefer to fight on. Wow. Now, I just have as one last question. With all that said, do you ever just have moments where you said, I can't believe we still have to do all this work, all this movement work, all, all this organizing? Like, why can't people just understand the value of our lives, the value of low income women, of, pe- of women of color, of people of color? Why do we need to do all this? Do you ever have those moments? <laughs> Of course I do. Of course I do. Um, And I also have such a deeply rooted belief that we can achieve the change that we want to see in our lifetime. And so even though there are times for all of us when we say, why do we have to keep saying this or why do we have to keep doing this? Um, What we know is that change is a slow process, um, but we've been blessed with people who have made those sacrifices before us. And, um, you know, I I can't remember who said this, but uh, maybe it was Alice Walker. Somebody said, you know, that our activism and our organizing is the rent that we pay to live on this planet. And so uh, (laughs) the reason that we have to do this is because we live in a world that is increasingly interdependent and we have to transform the relationships between people uh, from, you know, predatory and competitive to collaborative and cooperative um, if we're to survive as a society. So uh, whenever I get in those moments, I also remember what's at stake, and it helps me take another step forward. Alicia Garza, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That was MTV News Senior National Correspondent Jamil Smith speaking with Alicia Garza, co-creator of Black Lives Matter, Special Projects Director at the National Domestic Workers Alliance, and part of the We Won't Wait 2016 initiative. On August 28th, gunshots were falsely reported at Los Angeles International Airport. This, of course, caused immediate panic, led to an evacuation, had people running outside onto the tarmacs, and delayed hundreds of flights. And just two weeks earlier, a very similar thing happened at John F. Kennedy International Airport in New York, traced to, I swear, the Olympics. Apparently, applause during Usain Bolt's 100-meter dash was misinterpreted as gunfire, which led to chaos. Each of these incidents felt like terrorist attacks, yet they were both, thankfully, missing every key ingredient of one. There were no suspects, there were no weapons, there were no shootings. Our podcast producer, Mukta Mohan, was curious about the psychology behind these events. How is it that thousands of people at two of the busiest airports in the United States could be thrown into hysteria with such devastating ease? She called up Violet Chung, Secretary of the Society of Terrorism Research and an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of San Francisco. Dr. Chung, thanks for joining me on The Stakes today. You're welcome. My pleasure. Recent mass shootings in the United States and terrorist attacks at airports in Istanbul and Brussels have people on high alert. What exactly are the psychological effects of terrorism? Okay, so let's start from the beginning about at the airport, 
about this sounding of alarm when there is an alarm, really. Uh, that behavior reminds me of a recent study of anxiety. Uh, anxious participants said they heard cell phone rings when their phones didn't really ring. Uh, the researchers call it phantom rings. So that's normal anxiety. Pathological anxiety is also linked to similar behaviors. Um, obsessive compulsive patients, for example, would look for dust, and a single speck of dust would mean disease or even death to them. This kind of behavior is called hypervigilance. Basically, you keep your eyes open, ears on the ground for any signs of a threat. Then you overinterpret the threat. Even a small, neutral threat becomes a big, large, threatening one. Uh, that is essentially what you saw at the airport. People mistook a loud noise or some kind of signal and just overinterpreted. That's a typical act of hypervigilance. So what that means to me is that we are probably at the point of walking around with a sense of anxiety towards terrorism. Uh, so we walk into the airport with anxiety, basically. So that's what causes us to overinterpret signals and cause panic, basically. What I'm seeing is that anxiety is sort of dominating us right now. So you might ask, wait, aren't terrorists supposed to induce fear, not anxiety? Well, both fear and anxiety are responses to threat. Uh, which one we end up feeling depends on what the threat means to us. What causes people to feel fear versus feeling anxiety? If there's a threat and we think the threat is imminent, certain, and it's definitely happening, then we'll feel fear. If there's a threat, we feel like it's likely, it's ambiguous, and it's in the future, and that's a cause for anxiety. So it's really what that threat means to us. So I think in the Western world, we're still at the point of assessing the threat of uh, terrorism as something that will cause anxiety. So we're still likely to feel anxiety towards the infrequent terrorist threat. Uh, we're not, I don't think we're at the, at the point of walking around with fear just yet. So how does anxiety travel from person to person? Yeah, I think anxiety is, travels more easily than fear. Anxiety is really just I warn you and you warn the next person and we get together, talk about it, and you can work up anxiety, you know, pretty high. Uh, fear is harder to um, go from person to person. So the other person will really have to be believe the world is coming to an end, the bear is coming. Then the other person will feel fear. So, for instance, at LAX and at JFK, when people truly believed that there was an active shooter on the loose. There were stampedes, there were people hiding in bathrooms, there was a sense of hysteria. By that point, it had shifted from anxiety to fear. Am I right on that? Yes, you're correct. That if you're actually at the airport, alarm has been sounded, you truly believe it, then you are showing the prototypical fearful behavior. You run, you hide, you freeze sometimes, that's fear. So those are the people at the airport. How does something like this happen at two of the busiest airports in the country? Terrorism in itself is a very sort of a black swan event in the U.S. It's very difficult to predict when and where 
and how big uh, a threat it is. So we are working on an anxiety level. This is ambiguous threat. We don't know where, we don't know when, we don't know how big. So it's a perfect formula for anxiety. If you're not at the airport, that, that's what I'm saying. So on a day-to-day level, we're working around with anxiety because it's the p- perfect equation for anxiety. What were the events that led up to this, to creating that overall anxious feeling? Well, if you look at the L.A. airport history, you have a threat, either a real threat or supposed threat, you know, once every so many years. So it does keep it on our radar that there is a threat. You know, in, I saw in 2013, you know, there was a shooting, right? So it's on our radar all the time. So it's really difficult to put that aside to say, yes, I'm going to go to the airport and not even have a single doubt in my mind or a single worry in my mind. I think that's very difficult. If the general public is feeling anxious, what might the effects of that anxiety be? Well, that will make certain public policies popular. For example, uh, surveillance policies, which is about start a dragnet of all information and look for possible threat. That is really a close cousin of hypervigilance. So an anxious public will really embrace that, whether that's the right course of action or not, because it does work with their mindset. It does reduce their anxiety. What do you think would have to change on a cultural level to eliminate that anxiety, to normalize things again? I think we need to be aware of our emotions. What struck me is that we're very much aware of our emotions in everyday life, in our personal life, you know, about road rage or about fighting with a spouse or going to an interview or going to a test. We try to manage that. We know the harm of that. We try to work with that. But in the realm of terrorism, I don't think we have that awareness. We walk around with that emotion. We're not cautious about it. We just act on it. So the first sound of a loud noise, we overinterpret, and then we jump to conclusions, right? We put it on social media. We tell everyone else around me there's a terrorist threat because we're letting our emotions get in the better of us. If we have some awareness of that to say, hey, I'm going to the airport, I feel anxious, I know that, so I'm going to keep an eye on my anxiety. Once you hear the loud noise, you will at least take half a second to reflect on that. Wait, did I really hear it? Is that really gunshot? What was it, right? Do I need to double check or triple check? I think some awareness of emotions, control of your emotions, reflect on your emotions will be the solution. I don't think that anxiety will go away anytime soon, given the threat we have, uh, but I think we can manage it, and that will do a lot of good for us. How might security personnel or airport workers calm people down in moments like this? Yes, that is very much their job. If the public is not aware of their emotions, they really should be trained about emotions, about hypervigilant, about the signals that may or may not be correct. So they do have their job to do to manage the public Besides the usual things people talk about, we need to increase communication and all of that. We really need to train them to be aware of 
what emotions can do in the public, what fear does, what anxiety does, and what would the behaviors look like and how to manage them. Just like how psychology counselor will manage emotions in a couple, for example. So these are professionals work at the airport. They need to know something about emotions. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Chang. You're very welcome. That was podcast producer Mukta Mohan in conversation with Violet Chung, Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of San Francisco and Secretary of the Society of Terrorism Research. Let's finish off this week's show, as we love to do, with a beautiful web of words from our poet-in-residence, MTV politics writer Marcus Ellsworth, who this week will speak about his experience of faith, both as a weapon of hate and as an inspiration for compassion. I remember when I first felt the blade of my own faith at my throat. As a child, I loved the church, my church. I looked forward to Sundays and rejoiced in the rituals of Mass, the magic woven in the poetry of hymns, the comfort of a Heavenly Father holding all of us in His boundless heart. Then, from the mouths of people, I heard gossip of gospel without grace. And I wondered if my queer soul still had a place in my faith. The Bible became an outdated road map with too many notations from too many travelers, sections torn out, and paths obscured by centuries of bloodstains. And still, we see faith used to shield bigotry, faithful working like fiends, their end justifying the means of sacrificing neighbors, daughters, and brothers to seem holy in the eyes of others. But I've learned that their belief is not everyone's truth. I found queerness and faith gathered under the same roof in churches, synagogues, mosques, temples, circles, and lonely altars whispering love to the stars. I discovered traditions where God knows no gender and revered spirits love without definition. People who don't believe but find scripture in their veins and salvation in soothing another's pain. For every Westboro fanatic, there's a holy heretic refusing to let hate's communion near their lips. I imagine there's no hate in a heaven with no gate. No dogma, no threats against women who don't want to be mothers, no fear of another's culture, no disgust at love's expressions, no policing of gender. <laughs> no policing? Because no one would want, or hurt, or hunger, even though the rabble of the hateful faithful is so loud, there are many of us who would have it on earth as we believe it to be in heaven, with all of us, together, imperfect and fearfully made. That's it for us this week. 
I'm Holly Anderson, and those are the stakes. Enjoy your sun-blasted hellscape of a holiday weekend and take care of each other out there. This episode of The Stakes was produced by Michael Catano, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihailovich for the MTV Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at MTV Podcasts and subscribe to this and other MTV podcasts on iTunes.